Please take out your Bibles tonight and turn to the Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. The Gospel according to Matthew, chapter 27. Was an early, fearful, fatal Friday morning in the city of Jerusalem. A fatal Friday morning, the likes of which had never been seen before and the likes of which would never be seen again anywhere else on the earth. The very morning that God, the Creator, was crucified by His creation. Matthew chapter 27, beginning of verse 1. When morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people plotted against Jesus to put him to death. When they had bound him, they led him away and delivered him to Pontius Pilate, the governor. To think that it was the ropes that held him, unbelievable. As we read through chapter 27, we would read and see that, we would read down through and see that Judas what happens to him? We would look in verse 11 of chapter 27, where Jesus stood before the governor. The governor asked him, saying, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said to him, It is as you say. And while he was being accused by the chief priests and elders, he answered nothing. Whenever we are ridiculed, whenever we are told that we are wrong, whenever people just go after us hardcore, our first response is always to become defensive, and they were going after him hardcore. Jesus did not answer them. Then Pilate says to him in verse 13, Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? Pilate was hearing it. But, but Jesus' response was amazing to him. In fact, the next verse says, but he answered him not one word, so that the governor marveled greatly. As we read on in this chapter, we would see where, through the plotting and scheming of the chief priests, that Barabbas was released instead of Jesus. We would read on down through beginning in verse 24, what happened a little later on when Pilate saw that he could not prevail at all but rather that a tumult was rising, he took water and washed his hands before the multitude, saying, I am innocent of the blood of this just person. You see to it. You want him dead, you do it. And all the people answered and said, that chilling statement that we've brought up in Sunday morning in the adult class the last couple of weeks, as we've studied the destruction of Jerusalem that was to come, and this statement, Boy, did it come back on him. All the people answered and said, His blood be on us and our children. And Pilate released, verse 26, Barabbas to them, and when he had scourged Jesus. Isn't it amazing how the Bible can take something so brutal, so horrendous, so awful, and just put it in a few little words and move on? When they had scourged Jesus, when he had scourged Jesus, he delivered him to be crucified. So here's Jesus with his back torn open to the bone. Here's Jesus just covered with blood, maybe almost unrecognizable. And it says then, the soldiers of the governor 
They're going to take their turn. Took Jesus into the praetorium, or take more of their turn. Gathered the whole garrison around him. This wasn't two or three guys. They stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him. And when they had twisted a crown of thorns, they put it on his head and a reed in his right hand. Can't imagine with that blood just running down his back to put that robe on and just let it stick. They put that crown of thorns on. Most commentators, or the ones I've read, believe those were two-inch thorns and put that on his head. And they bowed the knee before him and mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. They spat on him. I don't know if anybody's ever spit in your face. But nobody had ever spit in God's. And this is God in flesh. They spat on him, took the reed, and struck him on the head. This wasn't some little reed like you find in a swamp. This was a stick. They struck him on the head where those thorns were. And when they had mocked him, they took the robe off him. My guess is they did not do so gently. Put his own clothes on him and they led him away. Be crucified. Keep in mind as we read through some of this, all of this, all of this happened. Plus the journey to Golgotha, it all happened before nine o'clock in the morning. You know how you get when you're tired and things don't register as well and maybe you don't process stuff as well, at least if I'm up, Jesus has been up all night. All this has gone on, and even with the journey to Golgotha, it still all happens prior to 9 a.m., according to Mark, chapter 15 and verse 25. Let us continue to read. Verse 32 of Matthew 27, as they came out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name. Him they compelled to bear his cross. Jesus has lost so much blood. Jesus is so weak at this point from the beating and the scourging. He can't even carry his own cross. When they come to a place called Golgotha, that is to say, place of the skull. They gave him sour wine mingled with gall to drink, but when he had tasted it, he would not drink. Then they crucified him, divided his garments, casting lots, that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet. They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Sitting down, they kept watch over him there, and they put up over his head the accusation written against him. This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right, another on the left, and those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads, etc. What we've just read is a fulfillment of the scripture from Isaiah 53. Verses 8 through 12, Isaiah, written approximately seven centuries earlier, foretold these things would happen. God knew 700 years earlier before he came exactly what was going to happen. It's interesting here, as we consider verse 38, two robbers, robbers were crucified. Interesting thing you may or may not have known. The New King James Version uses the word robbers, where some versions use the word thieves. There's a little difference in the Greek word. The difference is, Robbers puts across this idea of somebody who's bold, whereas thieves puts across the idea of somebody that's sneaky. Think about that. A thief can sneak into your house at night and, and take something, okay? 
These men were not thieves in that sense. These men were robbers. You say, well, there isn't much difference. No, there isn't. But robbers are bold. They don't care if you're home or not. They're coming, they're going to take it at, at point blank range. Robbers are bolder. These were not men who were afraid. They were not thieves. They were not sneaky. They were bold. The Greek word in vines means one who plunders openly and by violence. It comes from the Greek word for booty, the word for which we get pirate. The idea of a pirate, somebody that's bold and in your face and takes what they want by force and they don't care who opposes them. That's the two robbers. And that's important as we get into our discussion later on to remember that these were, these were men like that. Brigands, pirates, bold robbers. These were hardened men. That's the point. These were hardened men. These were men that were used to taking what they wanted by violence and force and they didn't care. They had no fear according to the word used. They weren't just somebody caught sneaking in to steal food for their families under the cover of darkness. This ought to make the rest of this sermon and what we talk about even a little more intense. Verse 39. Those who passed by blasphemed him, wagging their heads and saying, you are who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days. Save yourself if you're the son of God. Come down from the cross. Likewise, the chief priests also, mocking with the scribes and elders, said, He saved others. Himself he cannot save. If he's the king of Israel, let him now come down from the cross and we'll believe him. He trusted in God. Let him deliver him now if he'll have him. For he said, I am the son of God. Can you imagine the temptation? Think of the temptation. We think of the temptations of Jesus just in Matthew 4. Think of the temptation. Okay? <laughs> <laughs> if I'm Jesus and I'm on that cross, if I'm on that cross, I can't imagine being Jesus, if I'm on that cross, and they have charged me wrongfully, they have scourged me, they have beaten me, and they say, if you are the son of, he knew he was the son of God. Can you imagine what the temptation must have been to say, oh yeah, boys? Jesus was tempted in all things as we are. Even the robbers, verse 44, who were crucified with him, reviled him with the same thing. And that brings us to what we commonly refer to as the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross. You know, we don't do this crucifixion story all the justice that maybe we had ought to because this is not the story of the thief on the cross. This is a story of two thieves on the cross. There's two thieves there. We often only talk about the one that turned. But I think we need to really consider the thieves, plural, on the cross says. One of them we know later turned. One of them turned. We know that later, and we'll get into that in a moment. But isn't it awful when people want to take the story of the thief who turned and they want to make it all about some false doctrine, well, see, he didn't have to be baptized. Po folks, they're missing the point. There's so much more going on here with these two thieves, so much, so vastly much more going on. To take that one little pebble out of this, this giant beach of biblical truth, well, see, he wasn't baptized. The thief on the cross, the thieves on the cross says, there's a lot more going on here than that. 
Yes, one of them later turned. And his turning is only mentioned in the Gospel of Luke. But my point tonight is I want to do something again that we don't usually do, and that's focus on both robbers. In fact, the title of tonight's lesson is Two Robbers, Two Crosses, Two Different Perspectives and Destinations. Turn to me, if you will, to Luke 23. Luke chapter 23, beginning at verse 26. Little parallel with what Matthew had written. It's about the same event, so it makes sense. But bear with me as I read through this a little bit, even though some of it we've already heard from Matthew. Now as they led him away, they laid hold of a certain man, Luke 23 and verse 26. Simon, a Cyrenian, who was coming from the country, and on him they laid the cross that he might bear it after Jesus. And a great multitude of the people followed him, and women who also mourned and lamented him. But Jesus turning to them. Now, stop right there. Jesus turns to these women. And I want us to understand something. Jesus did not just simply say to them, Daughters of Jerusalem, do not weep for me, but weep for yourselves and for your children. He's not, I I can't believe it just happened like that. Think about what this man's been through. If you had been pummeled by a garrison of Roman soldiers, you think maybe your lips would be a little busted up? These guys are taking swings at you and slapping you across the face and, and beating you with a stick in the head. You suppose maybe you'd mumble a little bit through maybe a busted tooth or a broken lip. You suppose that, I, and I'm seeing Jesus, I'm thinking in my mind after all he's been through, that he's kind of, the man is so, the man is so exhausted he can't carry his own cross. If you think he stood up there like I am before you and said, daughters of Jerusalem, no. I believe when Jesus said that, just based on the beatings he's already taken, based on the scourging, based on the sleepless night, based on all of that, based on that garrison beating on that poor man, that probably through busted lips and blood and bruises, daughters of Jerusalem, struggling for his next breath. And we don't like to think about it like that, but that's more than likely the reality. Daughters of Jerusalem. Don't wait for me. And you look at this poor man, and, and how could you help it after what he's been through? Weep for yourselves, and I, I'm not going to try to imitate, but just, just try to think of how Jesus would be saying this after what he's been through. Weep for yourselves and for your children. For indeed, the days are coming in which they will say, Blessed are the barren wombs that never bore, and breasts which never nurse. Then they will begin to say to the mountains, Fall on us, and to the hills, Cover us. If they do these things in the green wood, what will be done in the dry? And again, as we go back to our Sunday morning adult class, talking about the destruction of Jerusalem that occurred in 70 AD when they were told that those in in the city needed to flee, hope they weren't pregnant in those days, and flee to the mountains. Jesus is saying in verse 11, look, if they'll do this to me when I'm the son of God here, think what they're going to do to you when I'm gone. There were two others, criminals, led with him to be put to death. Don't miss verse 32. These criminals that were led with him to be put to death, they were part of that procession. Think, and this is important. 
They were part of that procession that morning. They were going out to be crucified too. But you got these three prisoners, and they're all part of this, this procession out there. It's more than likely, very highly likely, that they heard what Jesus said to these women. Is it not? You've got three prisoners. They're pretty close together, probably. And chances are real good that they saw and heard what he said to these women in verses 28 through 31. And I'll tell you what, Jesus' concern for these women and the way he addressed these women, I do not believe for one minute that that is the way that most incarcerated men who are sentenced to death and are about to die would typically speak to a woman. Do you? Most men that are incarcerated and about to die would not be speaking as kindly to these women. But Jesus did. In verse 33, it says, There they crucified him, criminals, one on the right and one on the left. Then Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. To me, that's one of the most powerful prayers Jesus ever uttered. I know we talk about his prayer in Matthew 6. I know that we talk about what we call the high priestly prayer in John 17, but that one sentence to me is one of the most powerful prayers in the Bible. Think of this man's condition. I don't know if he got whole words out. He's so beaten up. And the people who did it to him are there. He says, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Would that make an impression on you? If you were about to die and you were about to be crucified and you were, you were being crucified with it, would it make an impression? Is that the way most people in this situation would treat their captors? No, not at all, not even close, nowhere near. Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. You know, you know, the Romans, they had gotten the art of crucifixion down to a science. Did you know that when Jesus was crucified, from everything I've read and studied, and I asked some of the young men in our, in our leadership training group this question, and they knew it, so they've got some good Bible class teachers. But did you know that Jesus was not pierced here? Did you know that? Jesus was pierced here. There's a couple of reasons for that. You know, we, can go into the, we could spend the time and go into the Greek term for hand and all of that stuff, but Jesus, from everything I've studied, spikes were driven in here. Two reasons for that. Number one, it holds a lot better. If it's just up here, it could tear out a little easier. But number two, you've got two big bones that come down your, you've got, you got two bones in there, right? And they had gotten the art of crucifixion down to such a science. Crucifixion wasn't just to kill them. If the Romans wanted to kill them, they'd have just butchered them. They wanted them to hurt. They wanted them to scream with pain. They had gotten this down to, a, to an art form. And so when they drove the spikes in, what they'd do is they'd put it right between, have you ever had one of those aches that just hurts you to your bones? Some of you that struggle with arthritis, just, 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 just that searing gives you a headache, that, that bone aching, cold, awful hurt. They would drive the spike in between those two bones. You know why? To separate them. Cause pain. They had this down to a science. And I wonder, as those other thieves are crucified, if they screamed when they drove the spikes in. If they just wanted to kill those Roman soldiers who had put them up there. 
Did they fight? Did those two thieves fight? Did they wiggle and try to get off those crosses? When, when that spike was put down and the hammer was driven and blood went everywhere and they were stood up and those crosses were dropped into to those, those holes that were probably there and just come down with a thud tearing and ripping, it th did they scream? I would have. But whatever they did or didn't do, they were nearby enough to hear what Jesus said in verse 34, because Jesus didn't react that way. Jesus didn't curse his captors. He said, Father, please forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Verses 35 through 38. And the people stood looking on. Or the rest of verse 34. They divided his garments and cast lots. And the people stood looking on. And even the rulers with them sneered, saying, He saved others. Let him save himself. He's the Christ, the chosen of God. The soldiers also mocked him, coming and offering him sour wine, and saying, If you're the king of the Jews, save yourself. And an inscription also was written over him in letters of Greek, Latin, and Hebrew. This is the king of the Jews. We know the crowds blasphemed him and mocked him. We know that according to Matthew's account in Matthew 27, 39 through 40. We know that the religious leaders who would not humble themselves and accept his truth and accept his authority and accept his teachings as the Messiah, we know that they too mocked him. We know the vast majority of the soldiers there that morning, too preoccupied with just another day of work and a chance to maybe get a few meager freebies from the guys they put on the cross, with their little game of chance as they're shooting for his clothing, we know that they mocked and ridiculed him, both here and while they were beating him to a pulp. And we know from Matthew and Mark's gospel that both the robbers also ridiculed him at least at first, but then one of those criminals, hardened criminals, bold brigands, pirates, robbers, one of those guys had a change of heart. Why? Why? He's still going to die. He's still guilty. He's still on that cross. Why the change of heart? Well, surely he must have known something about Jesus prior to this because he talks about the kingdom. Follow along in verses 39 through 43. Then one of the criminals who were hanged blasphemed him, saying, If you are the Christ, save yourself and us. But the other, the other thief, that is, answering, rebuked him, saying, Do you not even fear God, seeing that you are under the same condemnation? And we, indeed, justly. The other robber says, We deserve to be here for what we've done. For we receive the due reward of our deeds. But this man, and he couldn't point because he was spiked to a cross. He says, But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. He said, this man's done nothing wrong. Now surely he must have known something about Jesus beforehand, or it would make sense at least that he did, because he says to Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. So there's that. But even so, right in the beginning, he was right there with the crowd. He was right there with the other, the other robber, the other pirate, the other brigand. He was right there with him, according to the other two Gospels. He was, he was blaspheming Jesus, too. 
So what led to such an overwhelming change of heart for a hardened criminal who's dying on a cross? Well, think about this, because I believe this is the answer. As we consider the account and we consider how the Romans did things, we would have to believe that the beating that Jesus took at the hands of the soldiers was not a secret in the prison. I mean, they weren't prisons like our prisons today. We, we have to think, or, or in the praetorium, I'm sorry, but this is, this is not a huge, huge place, and we have to believe that the beating that Jesus took at the hands of the soldiers, the scourging that he had taken at the hands of the soldiers, must have been known by this point. If you'd followed Jesus all the way in this procession and you saw that poor man's back, it'd be pretty easy to deduce what he'd been through, wouldn't it? I mean, you'd have to be blind to miss the fact that this poor man's back is all ripped up. Maybe the cries, the laughter, the mocking was probably at least heard, if not witnessed, by the other prisoners. Secondly, the release of Barabbas was probably no secret either. I mean, think about it. In fact, it is believed by several commentators that these two robbers, these two brigands, these two bold pirates, as it were, had been part of the crew that was arrested with Barabbas, Barabbas being the boss. It was believed that all three of them were part of the same thing. Remember, Barabbas was going to go out there that morning. He was the one that was released, or we believe he was with these two. No big secret that Barabbas had been released. Then the walk to Golgotha that morning with both of these robbers as part of the procession. Maybe in close proximity, more than likely. They could very easily have seen Jesus stumble beneath his cross. I don't know that they did or they didn't. The Bible doesn't say, but it makes sense. They saw this man stumble beneath his cross, heard the exchange with the women that we read about and how he's more concerned for them and tells them not to weep for him. That's not what dying men do. And they watch him. They see how he responds, or at least catch glimpses. saw how Jesus handled it when they drove the spike in. They heard his gasping prayer, Father, please forgive them. They know not what they do. And then they had seen this man who was perfectly innocent, who had done no wrong, whether it was the robbers themselves, whether it was the riotous crowds, whether it was the religious leaders, or whether it was the Roman soldiers who tormented that man and mocked him and blasphemed him, they saw Jesus not revile in return. They saw Jesus not respond with anger and hatred in return for the anger and hatred that was being hurled at him from every corner. They saw this man who was totally innocent, who had done nothing wrong, take it with no venom, no anger, and only forgiveness. That's what they saw. So my question is, what did the penitent robber, that is the one that turned, what did the penitent robber see that the impenitent robber did not see? That's the question. What did the penitent robber see that the impenitent one did not see? Quite likely, nothing. And yet at the same time, everything. Of the impenitent one, it could be said 
Seeing he did not see, and hearing he did not hear nor understand. In fact, if I may paraphrase Matthew chapter 13, verses 14 and 15, insofar as the impenitent robber, the one who did not turn to Jesus, I would paraphrase it like this. And in him the prophecy of Isaiah is fulfilled, which says, Hearing you will hear and not understand, seeing you will see and not perceive. For the heart of this robber has grown dull, his ears are hard of hearing, his eyes he has closed, lest he should see with his eyes and hear with his ears, lest he should understand with his heart and turn so that Christ could heal him. With that being said, I'd like to take a moment and just, in a nutshell, show you how well these two men represent or illustrate the two kinds of people in the world today, including those we try to reach out to with the gospel. There's a lot of parallels. The similarities first. The similarities between these two men that were crucified, these two robbers with Jesus, they were both guilty. They were both guilty. The one penitent one says, hey, we're getting what we deserve. They were both guilty. They'd been judged guilty by Rome. The thief knew it. They were both guilty. People we try to reach out to, we need to understand today, they're guilty of sin. Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And you know what? We're guilty too. We've Those of us that have committed sin are guilty of sin. We're guilty, they're guilty, at least initially. Number two, another similarity between these two robbers and our world today and those we seek to reach out to. Both of those robbers became very quickly familiar with the sufferings and the sacrifice of the Christ. They saw him, they, they, they saw his sufferings, they saw his sacrifice, both of them saw that and you know, there's not too many people in the world today, if you bring up Jesus' name, that don't know about the cross. Very few, in fact. Most people are somewhat familiar, at least, with the sufferings and the sacrifice of Christ. Most people are, to a degree. And number three, another similarity with these two that we sometimes encounter today, both of them followed the crowd and mocked and blasphemed, at least at first. There are people today will hear about the Lord and they'll hear about the Lord's church. They'll blaspheme the Lord's church because they'll call us all kinds of names or, you know, Campbellites or cultists or whatever it is they're going to call us and everybody jumps on the bandwagon. Just like with Jesus, when they couldn't refute the truth that Jesus brought, they went after the messenger. When you can't assault the message, go after the messenger. That's what they did, and that's what a lot of people do today. They'll even go after the messenger himself rather than just his church, Jesus Christ. But that's pretty much where the similarities of these two men end. I want us to notice tonight, and this gets right into the, the heart and soul of tonight's lesson, where the similarities end. Notice that the impenitent robber only had eyes for and was only interested in one thing. The one who did not turn to Jesus, did not ask to be with him in his kingdom, only saw one thing. He was only concerned with one thing. Getting out of his own immediate 
self-inflicted and painful circumstances. Luke 23 and verse 30 to 9. Unfortunately, that's like many today who call the church and they've got some problem, be it financial or some other, and they call the church and all they want is a quick bailout from their problem. We ask them to come and to come to services and we, we tell them about Jesus. We talk to them about how to be converted, about how to be saved, but many of them, all too many of them, are only concerned with one thing, just like that thief, their own immediate circumstances and how to get out of them. And that's it. I think sometimes today, too, when people come and they hear the message, and even if they respond, sometimes it's like a quick fix. It's like, will this get me out of the mess that I'm in? And, and that was the impenitent robber. But the penitent robber was the one who, he was going through the same pain. They'd driven the same spikes into him, same type of spikes. He's going through pain. He's going through misery. But the penitent robber was the one who, no matter how difficult it was to see through his own pain and his own tears and his own blood, perhaps, chose to see Christ instead of his problems. He chose to see Jesus for who Jesus was. He chose to focus on the love and the grace and the holiness and the righteousness of Jesus Christ more than his own immediate problems. That's the difference between those two robbers. Luke 23, 40 through 41. With the impenitent robber, even in the very presence of Jesus Christ the Lord, it was still all about him, to him. It's all about himself. While the other robber was willing to suffer the pain and the consequences that his life and his circumstances and his choices had brought him as long as he could be with Jesus in paradise when it was over. Lord, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus said this very day you'll be with me in paradise. He had eyes enough to see that he wanted to be with Jesus. He wanted to be part of this kingdom. And that's what he was looking at. And he was looking, he saw Christ and how he responded to people. He saw his holiness and his righteousness. And he believed that Jesus could take him to that kingdom. That's the difference between the two. What more could Jesus Christ have done that morning? Think about all he did. What more could Jesus Christ have done that morning to convince that other robber to come around to? What else could Jesus have done that morning in his response to people, in his response to the robbers, what else could Jesus have done that morning to have gotten that other robber to come around to? Probably nothing. Because if he could have, he would have, because it is God's will that none should perish, but that all should come to repentance, 2 Peter 3, 9. And if there had been a way to reach that other robber, Jesus would have done it. Because Jesus didn't want to see him perish. By extension, we talked about this morning in the lesson, if we love like God loves and we give of ourselves and we serve and we sacrifice for those who come through these doors into the church building, 
and we live like Jesus lived, and we do what Jesus did, and we treat others with the compassion that Jesus did, and we do all those things, and they decide that they don't want part of that, what more can you and I do? Nothing. Nothing. We show them Jesus like Jesus showed them God. And even in that same circumstance, you've got one who will choose to see it and one who will not choose to see it, and there's nothing else Jesus could do. What more could the man have done? He did everything it was possible to do. And still that one chose not to see it. Too consumed with himself. You can lead a sinner to the Savior, but you can't make him faithful. Two robbers, two crosses, two different perspectives and destinations, two different kinds of people going in two opposite eternal directions because they choose to see two different things. Same circumstance. So the point as I conclude tonight is this. I am convinced in my own mind that what turned that thief was seeing the holiness and the righteousness and the purity, the praying for his enemies and all those things that we read about at length that Jesus did and, and it got to him and he, he came to realize we deserve to be here but I'm, I'm watching this man and he's done nothing wrong. I can see that by the way he treats people and what he does. He's praying for his enemies. This man has done nothing wrong. Remember me today, he says, when, uh, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said, this very day you'll be with me in paradise. Conclusion is this. Let's make sure that you and I, you and I, every last one of us in this room and all of those who are members of this church who aren't here tonight, let's make sure that every one of us always do everything we can to live the most faithful and godly example that we possibly can even in the midst of our worst struggles, even in the midst of the beatings that we sometimes take at the hands of the world, so that those who would recognize and respond, respond to the Lord correctly if they saw him can see him more clearly living in us. Let's not become robbers ourselves robbing people of the opportunity to see Jesus Christ and to be with him in heaven forever because they can't see him in us. Let's let them see him in us. At least give them the choice. That's what changed that one robber. That's how we'll change people to Christians. Tonight, if you're here and you have never responded to the love of God by being baptized into Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, or if you need the prayers of the church, please come to the front as we stand and as we sing.